in many um, Jewish congregations around the world <clears throat> in all of the flavors of Judaism that exist, and there are so, so many. I, hesit I hesitate always to ever use the term, this is what they do, okay? Uh, let's just say many. Um, they have a Torah portion that they read each week. There's a calendar that's put out and has been around for a long, long time. And um, the Torah portion takes three years, so it's a three-year cycle. And it's read at the beginning of the week, and um, it's supposed to be prayed upon and studied and lived upon. And then when you get to synagogue, maybe it's preached upon, maybe it isn't. Uh, but that portion lives with you, you know, all that week. And the portion that includes Exodus 25, 8, the parashat terumah, that is the Torah reading of the offering. A rabbi said this, the verse says first, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And the parashat or the Torah reading is offering because that sanctuary was supposed to be built by offerings, free will offerings with the children of Israel bringing so that that sanctuary could be built. I found one rap from a few years ago, I found one rabbi's commentary on this. It said that God's burning desire for a relationship with mankind, the relationship that was once cut off and destroyed by sin in the Garden of Eden, lays a foundation for a restored relationship by ordering the construction of the tabernacle. They're asking Israel to offer willingly from their hearts the finest materials necessary for the building of the tabernacle. And a few years ago, a couple years ago when that was read, I think the last time that this was read would be in 2019, there's a synagogue in Chicago called Mishkan Chicago. Mishkan is the Hebrew word for tabernacle. It's the Hebrew word for sanctuary. And their davening team recorded this song in order to go along with that week's commentary, the Parashat Teramad. I just wanted to play it for you today. just wanted you to hear it today from this synagogue in Chicago. Oh Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you.
be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for Know something? That a progressive reform synagogue in Chicago would use an old uh, chorus, evangelical chorus, written back in the 60s to be able to sing about this parashat, to sing about this. And the amazing thing is, is remember that in the Bible, it's about the beginning, uh, it's about the building of the, the sanctuary, the copy, the one here on earth, and yet they get it, don't they? They understand what uh, the actual sanctuary really is, that it's us, to prepare us to be. So in, in, in light of that, oh, by the way, the second verse, that was what it sounds like in Hebrew. So um, in light of that, in light of being able to be uh, brought together, at least for a moment, at least to one other congregation, I wanna say that after a few weeks away, which I've missed. I really enjoyed all of our time together, Easter and communion and everything else, but I've missed our letter to the Hebrews, have you? I've missed it, it's been a great ride. It's been a joyful, ecstatic ride for me to ride through the road to forgiveness, to atonement, to intercession, to coming face to face with God, all made possible by one man, all made possible by who? This high priest. The sanctuary didn't work without the high priest. It doesn't work at all. It doesn't bring us one step closer to God without this high priest, but not just any high priest, amen? Not just any high priest, but the ones, because there's been hundreds and, and, and probably thousands by the time that the author of Hebrews writes this. So Hebrews gives a specific portrait of what that one high priest is, who he really is, all that he is. We're reminded in chapter two, he said that he was to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. What made him special was that he was like us. He was made human. That's one of the things that made him special. He brought mercy, he, he, he felt us, he gets us. And he realizes we need one thing, we need mercy. We need his mercy. In chapter four, we learned that he says that we have such a high priest. In chapter four, he said he can't sympathize with our, with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things, yet as we are, without sin. He realizes we need mercy. He can equate and, 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 and understand all of us and gets us completely in order to be able to get his record without sin, to give us mercy, to have that, to match our record with his, and to, for him to cover it up in his record. And so it does, the first thing that makes him special is he is the son of man, amen? But also, get this, what makes him even more special is that since we have such a great high priest who's passed through where? 
the heavens. This isn't a human high priest who went through the sanctuary here on earth, the copy, the replica. This is the one who passes through the actual sanctuary, the one in the heavens. Jesus, the son of who? The son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. We confess Jesus as the son of man. We also confess him as who? As the son of God. Grady reminded us that 1 John writes, if we've got the son of God, if we have the son, we have what? If we don't have the son, we don't have life. So it's hard to believe. It really is hard to believe. But as first century Jewish believers are about to lose their anchor, they're going to lose their anchor. It's estimated that Hebrews probably was written in the 60s. We do know what happens in 70 AD, do we not? The temple will be destroyed. And by the way, remain destroyed. It hasn't been rebuilt to this day. So I believe that when he, when he told us, uh, uh, back in chapter five, when he told us that Jesus would be the anchor, he had this in mind, he knew this in mind. He knew it wasn't gonna be long before that copy or that building was gonna be torn away. Their anchor, their footing, God's dwelling amongst Israel, what they've been taught for 4,000 years. Because God commanded 4,000 years ago, let them build me a sanctuary so I may dwell in them, with them. First century believers are about to have that anchor taken, yanked right out from underneath them. And so he wanted them to know that God's presence could still be with them, that God's presence would be with them. Because it's this high priest who is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. To me, the love that the author feels, feels for his fellow Hebrews and knows that God has always loved them enough and that the idea that the high priest has always been with them, he wants to take them back. And like I said, back in chapter five, he introduced us to a new name, a new term, a new way of imagining this high priest. How can I get it across to my fellow Hebrews that this high priest still exists, that this high priest won't be taken away when Rome destroys the temple? Do you ever wonder what happened to the priesthood when the temple was destroyed? The priesthood was destroyed too because they had nothing to minister in. So in chapter five, in verse nine, he said, having been made perfect, this high priest, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. And then he said this, he said, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of who? Melchizedek, Melchizedek. You, <laughs> I'm probably gonna say this uh, name um, so many times today that it's going to end up sounding weird. You know that, time, that thing when you use a word too much and all of a sudden it sounds strange and it's not making the impact? It might do that. Melchizedek. I should just say Melchi. But Melchizedek, or according to that order, in order to be able to begin to get across to those Hebrews, he brings up this guy, he brings up this word, according to the order of who? 
Melchizedek. Maybe if I make you say it, I won't say it as much and it may not happen. But then at the end of chapter six, is which we were last week, he said, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of who? Melchizedek. Chapter four, he brings him up. Chapter six, he says, guess who is that priest? And who is? Because he is that forerunner. That's what we looked at last week. And he now can be, can be for us, if we would choose to believe, can be that anchor, the anchor of our souls that this forerunner was supposed to bring. That's what, he, that's what he concluded with. That's what he was supposed to be. The temple, not the anchor. The priesthood, not the anchor. The priest, not necessarily the anchor. But this guy, this priest that was raised up in the order of who? Of Melchizedek. That guy, he could be our sole anchor. He could be the one. So this is the hope that we have. So Melchizedek, Melchizedek. Before we even get to today's study, I haven't even started today's study. Today's study will be Hebrews chapter seven, by the way. I haven't even started. And just by saying those four verses that the author of Hebrews used in the last two chapters, we now know twice as much about Melchizedek than we did before because he's only mentioned twice in the entire Hebrew Bible. That's it. His name is mentioned twice. That's all. That's all we know. So all the information that you're going to get today is almost like it's brand new information. We know nothing about this guy. And that's what's amazing is that the author of Hebrews is going to try to give people information about the high priest according to an order that we have no information for. We don't know. Keep that in mind. For this Melchizedek, king of what? King of Shalem. Salem, if you will, priest of the Most High God who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. We know the story, right? Abraham had to go to war because they took his nephew Lot captive. He made up a, an army, a, a, a coalition, if you will. He went to war, he won, he defeated, but after the war, something weird happened. This priest, this king, if you will, just shows up. He just shows up with bread and wine in order to be able to uh, bless Abraham. As a matter of, actually, let me, let me keep going. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils was first of all by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, he remains a priest, how much? Perpetually, he remains a priest. So what makes this priest special, according to the author of Hebrews, is actually the opposite of what we would think makes him special. See, we would think what makes some, something or someone sacred or special or what God holy is that if I can get all the information in the world I can get about him. The author of Hebrews says, no, what makes this one special is how little we do know about him. That's the blessing. That's the blessing. We know a lot about others, and we know a lot, especially about other priests. We know a lot about high priests. But this one, we know how much? Almost nothing. And the author of Hebrews says, that's the blessing. 
I knew I was coming up, I shouldn't uh, jump the gun, but here's the story. Here is it, here is all the information you have about Melchizedek from the Bible before the author of Hebrews began to write this down. Melchizedek, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of the God Most High. He blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He comes out first, first thing he does is that he blesses him. He offers him a meal and he blesses him, okay? And notice what he says about Abram. Abram of the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Does he know who Abram is? Abram's been given heaven and earth, right? At this particular point in the covenant, he's been given two steps in the covenant and one of them was, was that he would own the land that he was walking on and if he looked into the skies of heaven and counted the stars, if he could do that, that would be the number of his seed, that would be the number of his children. Melchizedek repeats the covenant. So Abram knows immediately where he's from, right? He knows immediately where he is, who he is. And now observe how great this man to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choice of spoils. So this guy just shows up out of nowhere. All we know is his name, and all we know is that he is the king of righteousness. That's what Melchi Sedek means. Sedekah is the Hebrew word for righteousness. Melchi, Melech, it's, 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 it's a little iffy. It's a little iffy, but he is, my king is right, literally is what his name is. My king is right, or I am, he is the king of righteousness. And then the king of Salem it's just the same word that we get shalom from, shalem and shalom. And that's the th strange thing too, is that everyone says, well, that's Jerusalem. Well, it's what we assume it is. But before then, nobody knew what or where Jerusalem was. We don't even know what he's priest or king of, except to be able to translate that as what it looks like, king of peace. Melech Shalom is really his name. Melech Shalom, Melech Shalom. Melchizedek, my king, the king of righteousness, and Melech Shalom, the king of peace. So what we don't know about him is what he then blesses the Most High. This guy who shows up out of nowhere, who we know nothing about, he shows up and gives God's blessing to Abram, who at the time is the most anointed of humans on earth. He's the man, isn't he? He's the one. The greatest, our father Abram paid tithe to this king. So the author of Hebrews says, well, he must be greater. Observe how great this man to whom Abram the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils, he says. He gave him a tenth. If our, if our greatest human, if our great father Abraham paid tithe to this king of peace, king of righteousness, then he must be greater than him. You could see why the author of Hebrews wanted to go back to this story. Because usually if you, if you want to stop an argument in Hebrew circles, all you got to do is come up with Abraham. You mentioned Abraham, mentioned David, and you're off to the races, aren't you? Then he says this, 
And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect the tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. Priests get their tithe from where? Priests get their tithe from fellow human beings. And in this particular case, Abram hasn't been able to pay tithe according to the priest because the law doesn't exist yet. You know why the law to pay tithes doesn't exist yet? It's because the priests don't exist yet. As a matter of fact, the first priest that's going to ask for tithe is his great-great-grandson, Levi. That's who the law says should collect tithes. And here Abram is paying tithes but he's not paying it to his great-great-grandson. Why? Because he can't pay it to his great-great-grandson and the tribe that arises from his name to where we get the what? Where we get the priesthood. So that's the author of Hebrews' argument. Abram paid tithe to one who has no genealogy, tracing to the origin. He preceded the covenant, Melchizedek does. He precedes the covenant because the promises were to Abram. He's carrying the promises back to Abram. And it says this, it says, but that we whose genealogy is not traced back and collected, okay, sorry, I gotta get it here. And so to speak through Abraham, even Levi who received tithes did what? He paid tithes also, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Levi was still there. The law says pay tithe to the Levites. That's what the law says. And the Levites would would receive tithe because that's what God said, and they also would what? They would pay tithe. But Abram's doing it for a different reason. The law didn't tell him to. There's something about this Melchizedek. There's something about him. Levi's not even a twinkle in Abram's eye. Levi is is Abram's great, great grandson. So this king of righteousness, king of peace, precedes the forerunner of the priesthood. It's the point he's trying to get across. Then he moves on to this. He says this. He brings up a word that he hasn't used before. Now if what? Perfection was through the what? Through the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood that's going to arise in four generations after this, maybe, uh, maybe even more to give time for Levi to grow up and have kids on his own and for Israel to go through the exodus and get to the point to where they have to build the sanctuary in the first place to give time for, for all of this. For on the basis, if the people had received the law, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? The argument is given that the priesthood was given by God by the law. And the law is what? The law is perfection. Amen? Is God's law perfect? Yes, it's perfect. So the author of Hebrews has been pointing this out, that no one has has ever achieved what? Perfection. The imperfection of the law is not the law's problem. Why is the law imperfect? Because we're the ones trying to keep it. We're the ones trying to enforce it. And has anyone ever been able to do it? No, and by the way, 
Was anybody ever made perfect by that Levitical priesthood? In other words, if you brought your, your, your sin uh, offering and it was made by the priests and it was stored into the sanctuary and the day of atonement they come, did that make that sinner perfect? If the priest did his job the way he was exactly supposed to do it, did that make any sinner in Israel perfect? No, you know why? Because he had to do it again. As soon as the Day of Atonement is done one year, the, cleansing, the sanctuary is cleansed, but guess what? The very next day, the priest is waiting at the entrance for who? For sinners to bring their what? Their sin offerings. Levitical priesthood made how many people perfect? None, including themselves, right? Including themselves. So they may argue then, all right, maybe I can buy in to this new priest. But if we get this new priest, you're going to have to change the law. Because if the priesthood was brought about by, by the law, then the law will need to be changed, right? Because if there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe for which no one has ever served. Who is he trying to attribute this order of Melchizedek to? Who does the author of Hebrews say this high priest is? Jesus. What tribe is he from? Judah. According to the law, can he be high priest? Nope. So the author of Hebrews is actually arguing what his fellow uh, Hebrew believers already believe. He's already giving them their argument. Saying, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. This Jesus that I'm speaking of, he's from the tribe of Judah. As a matter of fact, his, his stepfather and his mother, both from the tribe of Judah. But there's something different about this one. How could Jesus be high priest? You would need to change the what? You'd need to change the law. He's from the wrong tribe. And has the law changed? No. Well, maybe not. See, if the law is perfect because it's given by God, then who's the only one that can change it? God. So the author of Hebrews goes on. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with the tribe, Moses said, how much about priests? Nothing. Nothing about priests. So apparently from the law, you can't do this. Apparently from the law, it can't be done. The law has to change. God would have to change the law for Jesus to be the high priest. My question is, did he? Did the law change? No, it didn't. Yet, however, not but, but yet, however, was it fulfilled? Was it completed? Was it made more glorious? I think that it was, and that's the, that's the argument that he is about to put forward. It's even more obvious when another priest arises resembling Melchizedek. In other words, he said the idea that, that Jesus is not from the right tribe according to the law, it becomes even more obvious with this guy because this guy has no genealogy. He doesn't come from where? He's got no genealogy, yet he was made what? He was made a priest. 
One who's become a priest, not through a legal requirement concerning physical descent, but through the power of an indestructible life. The law couldn't make Melchizedek a priest or king. The law couldn't do it. Who could do it? Who could do it? Who has the power to give an indestructible life? Only God. Only God. For Melchizedek to be high priest, it would require a change of the law that only God could do, but creator of all things and in all things. The change, the change is bringing about a high priest who will last how long? Last forever, which the law could only appoint high priests who don't last forever. Are you with me? The law said they have to come from Levi. These priests came from Levi for 4,000 years, but what happened to them? They lived, they died, they lived, they died, they lived, they died. And then the temple was destroyed. So now the law, as it's written, what can it do? So God speaks again, and he speaks about a new order. Not new to him, amen? He's from ancient of days. No beginning, no end. It's not new, is it? So he didn't change it, did he? No. However, he made it full. He made it complete. This order according to Melchizedek. Because he attests it to him, he says, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Author of Hebrews jumps from Genesis to Psalms and says right there, God is speaking in Psalms according to David and he pronounced how, how long of a priesthood on Melchizedek. You are, you are a priesthood for how long? Forever. Forever. So God did speak again. The law is written again. Was it changed? No. Was it fulfilled? You bet it was. See, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, became peace, not from the law, not from a legal requirement, but from another power, an eternal life. Who's the only one that can grant that power? It's God himself. And according to the law, according to the scriptures, Psalms and Genesis, he did speak itself, himself. He did bring about this forever priesthood. You are a priest forever, according to Melchizedek. He's forever. By the way, that quote right there, that's the last time you'll see it quoted in all the Hebrew scriptures. That's it, right there. Two times, two times. Once in Genesis, once in Psalms. That's all we know about him. Or at least that's all we knew about him until Jesus came. Because then the author of Hebrews had a whole bunch of stuff opened up for him. So let me tell you about this high priest. Let me tell you. The eternity of the high priest. The high priest, because of him, is now forever. For on the one hand, there's a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weaknesses and uselessness. Like I said, with the temple destroyed and the priesthood gone, what good is the law when it comes to this anymore? Are you with me? He said that it's useless. It's weak and useless. 
For the law made how much perfect? Nothing perfect, no one perfect. Yet on the other hand, there's a bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And that which forever is what? Perfect. His perfection, not from the law, but from the power of Jesus' indestructible life. It brings us a better hope, he says. How is it we can draw near to God? How is it you can be made right with God? Walk right into him right now into the most holy place and say, Lord, I'm glad to see you today. How is it we can do that? It's because of the power of Jesus' indestructible life. He is our high priest in in the order of Melchizedek. He's our king of righteousness. He's our king of peace. And he became priest, not from the weakness of a human genealogy, but from an actual oath from God, from a pronouncement from God. Guess what? From a word from God. And this absolute proof of his unchanging oath is it was confirmed with an oath for others who became priests to their office without an oath, that this one became a priest with an oath because of the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. You are a priest forever. He became priest again, not because of the weakness of the law that said that a priest has to come from the genealogy of Levi, not from the word written on the page, which now time has moved on from, when it, especially when it comes to atonement. See, if the law was absolutely perfect and could not be changed, then guess what? When the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, our hope died along with everyone else's hope. And is that what God wanted? Did he want us here? in his sanctuary, worshiping 2,000 years after that? Yes, he did. He wants us here in the presence of the forever high priest, not the ones that died 1,930 years ago. That which is forever is now perfect. It brings us a better hope. You are a priest forever. And he is that priest because of an unchanging oath from God. Guess what now will never change? This oath. Not written in tablets, not written in stone, but come from the living, breathing mouth of God into the living, breathing high priest. And because of this indestructible life, it's so much better because Jesus has become the what? The guarantee of a what? of a better covenant. Jesus guarantees it. The priesthood guarantees it because he is the living, breathing, walking oath that he will be a priest forever. And what is put in place in order that we know he guarantees it, what is it that guarantee it is that he says, because furthermore, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by what? By death from continuing in office. They couldn't go. The fact that Levi and Aaron and Eliezer and Abiathar and Ahimelech, they're all dead. 
I almost said they're living, breathing examples of imperfection. No, they're non-living, non-breathing examples of imperfection. Whereas Jesus, this high priest, in the order of who? I need you to say it. I'm, I'm almost done saying the word Melchizedek. He's the living, breathing example of perfection. It's him. He holds the priesthood permanently. Because what? Because he continues forever. Death didn't touch him. As a matter of fact, death was defeated by him. He defeated it. God's oath that the high priest remains forever is permanent. Permanent. Didn't we just study that all week, the last two weeks? He died, yes, in order to taste death for us, by the way, in order to be able to get us to even have an opportunity to believe in what the author of Hebrews is writing us to do. Yes, he died, but he rose again. So here we are on this planet, still trying to live this out. Amen? Still trying to understand this. So some may argue, and sometimes I feel like this, and it's okay to feel like this, I think. Some may argue, so what? Big whoop. He is the high priest, the permanent forever high priest. He's God, so what? I knew that already. I figured that out. What does it mean to us? What does it mean to me? Well, Hebrews said that he was the guarantor of what? He guaranteed what? A new covenant, right? He guaranteed a new covenant. And so because he is who he is, was who he was, and will be who he will be forever, he consequently is able for all time to do what? To save those who approach God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him. He died once. He doesn't have to die again. He's not going to die again, but he lives to intercede. That's what he is doing. That's what makes it perpetual. The eternity that he has, he actively saves all those who will approach him. That's what he's doing. See, the thing is, the thing that, that a fallen man, you and me, the son of men, the fallen sons and daughters of men, that we would never do with our perfection, hold me on this, is that we would be satisfied with just being perfect, wouldn't we? Whoo, man, I'm glad I'm perfect. Boy, was that hard work. Give it to you, forget it. I did it, you can do it too, Right? And if there's anybody who could have just been who they wanted to be, it was Jesus. But Jesus decided, no, I'm not just going to be perfect. I'm going to give perfect. The guarantee is that if we would approach him. See, this is what the author continues to say about him. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. This he did once and for all when he did what? 
when he offered himself. Why do other high priests have to offer sacrifices day after day? Because the weakness of their flesh requires it. They are son of men, but they need the son of God because every day their weakness requires it. Let me change that. Every day our weakness requires it. They were sinners as we are, waking up every morning in need of what? Forgiveness and atonement day after day. The good news? The law appointed high priests who are subject to weakness, but the word of the oath, which came when? Which comes later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect, what? Forever. Oh my goodness, that's the line of the day and not one amen in his church. Paul put it this way in Romans 8. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The word of the oath came later than the law. Let me ask this question. Did the word of the oath come later than the law? Oh, you bet he did. And the word became flesh and walked among us. You see, he had no origin. He had no genealogy. His death was never reported in the law. Why? Because he remains. That which has not began cannot what? Cannot end. So since we know so little about him, we get all the info that we can. And the info is probably, the most information that we get about him is his name himself. Melchizedek, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. Melech Shalom, king of peace. Righteousness and peace. I told you this was good news for us today. Righteousness and peace belong together. They always do. In Psalm 85, 10, the psalmist says, steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Righteousness is a state of being completely right. Perfect, if you will. See, of course, when the Bible writers are talking about who we are, uh, need to be right with, who is it they are concerned with us being right with? Who should we be concerned about being right with? Right with who? Right with God. That's what righteousness is. And we're told how it's obtained. We were told that today. He is able for all time to save those who approach God through him. Holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He does with his righteousness what a sinner never could do, and that is he gives righteousness. He is not just righteous, he gives righteousness. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5. He says, therefore, since we are justified by faith, and remember when we studied Romans, that word justified in English is the root word or the uh, verb, if you will, of the noun righteousness. So really what we're supposed to be saying here is since we are made right by faith, you with me? Since we are made right by faith, we may have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're made right. We're put in a state of righteousness by faith. And note the results. 
What's the first result Paul tells you when we are right with God through Jesus Christ? We have what? We have peace. We have peace. Because it's through him that we attain the access to this grace in which we stand and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. See, if we're going to walk with him, if we're going to achieve his righteousness, if he's going to give us his righteousness, then guess what? We're gonna have to share his glory. We have to fight the temptation to keep it to ourselves. We have to fight the temptation to be able to walk with him in this forever priesthood, if you will, because remember, we worship a God who is a priest, a high priest, who intercedes. He intercedes on behalf of people. That's what you and I do now. And the only way that we can intercede on behalf of people to God is at least, at least to try to admit that we should strive to love them as much as God loved them. And by the way, if we can love them as much as God loved them, then we have interceded for them. He is our king of righteousness. It should bring us peace. We claim it. When Grady read our scripture reading today, whoever has the son has what? Has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. If we may have life, we will not just be righteous, we will also be peace. If we have peace with God, then we should have peace with each other or strive for peace with each other. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. He who is at peace with God should be at peace with everyone else. Because Paul will go on and he'll say, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone may actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's hard to swallow, it really is. And I'm glad I'm getting some hallelujahs from the corner over here. But do we really realize what that says? That he died for the ungodly. The intercession that we make needs to be made with people while they're still what? Ungodly. And not because they're ungodly and God does it for them. It's because we were ungodly when God did it for us. He didn't wait to give us his righteousness until we decided to get our act together. He didn't wait. He didn't wait for Abram to get his act together. He didn't wait for Abram to become circumcised in order to, for his command. Abram believed and he reckoned to him as righteousness. If we claim to be a people of faith, we claim we will treat people and, and probably end up having to throw out words like godly and ungodly, enemies of God and friends of God, rebellion and not. We probably need to quit othering people. Because that ungodly that he is willing to die for in their ungodly state, he died for me and you in the same state. 
We've forgotten that because we've decided to believe and we've been put on a road to obedience. And I understand that. I get it. But when we approach other people, we can't approach it from that road. We're not bringing about reconciliation. We're not bringing about peace until we remember that one thing, that he died for everybody while they were yet enemies. So that means that if there's anybody out there who's still an enemy of God, he still died for them. And are we willing to do the same? Is that what we're prepared to do? Because before we pronounce that we believe this unbelievably believable good news about Melchizedek, are we prepared to give his righteousness and peace to his enemies? Because we were given both while we were his enemies. Only then do we get this peace. Only then do we hear it Paul speaking to us, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. What then are we to say about such things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then three chapters later we'll say, and he who did not withhold his son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? I was so moved this week. By the way, I need to make an announcement. After three and three quarter years, we finished the book of John in prayer meeting. So if you were staying away because you thought we took too long on one book, we're starting a new book this week, so maybe you'll join us. But what you missed out on was this. We prayed for three and a half years, three and a three quarter years, that God would take the word off the page and begin to write it upon our hearts. And I have to tell you, those two groups, the, the groups of prayer meeting, we experienced that, we really did. I experienced it like I never experienced it before. But I have to tell you, there was something that we were wrapping up the Gospel of John. And I said something. I said, I said something that I used to believe about Jesus. And, 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 I, and, I, and I said it the way that I used to, uh, used to believe about Jesus, but no longer do. And I thought I was going to have to clarify it. And I said, I said, but now this is what I believe. And when I said that, I decided to ask the question. I said, is that what you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that he would be this way, is, is, is how I described him. And a brother in prayer meeting said, no, I don't. And I said, why is that? He said, because it's just not in his character. If there's one thing, one thing, that we should wake up every day and we look and we're trying to determine what's right and what's wrong and who's right and who's wrong and who is other and who is us, one thing we should ask is, is this within the character of Jesus? Is this within the love of God that I know and have experienced? It warmed my heart so much to hear someone else say, no, I don't believe that. It's just not in his character. Shouldn't that be the arbitrator as to what our doctrine is, what our mission is, who we are as believers? It's just not in his character. I just don't buy it.
Will we remember this before we say one word to somebody? Will we, will we be mere proselytizers trying to preach? Will we ask first? Will we begin to care? Before we claim to be, to have life because of the Son of God. Unlike other high priests, he has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. This he did once and for all when he offered himself. I'm not sure where I found this. I found this in a, uh, in a devotional where somebody wrote actually what he or she was hearing from God in this devotion that they were having. And it really inspired me. Because in the spirit, without the genealogy, the order of Melchizedek can speak to us. And it may not be on paper, and it may not be in the scripture that we're reading, but it just might be and in, 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 in definitely be in the lived experience that we're going through today. So they say this, they say, living by grace inspires a growing consciousness that I am what I am in the sight of Jesus and nothing more. It's his approval that counts. Making our home in Jesus as he makes his in us leads us to creative listening. And then he or she crosses to the voice of God. Has it crossed your mind that I'm proud of you? Has it crossed your mind? That you've, that you've accepted the gift that I've offered you? Do you know that I'm proud that you freely chose me and after I'd chosen you as your friend and Lord? Are you, do you know that I'm proud that you believe in me enough to wanna try again and again? Are you aware how I appreciate you for wanting me? I want you to know how grateful I am when you pause to smile and comfort a child who has lost her way. I'm grateful for the hours you devote to learning more about me for the word of encouragement you passed to your burnt out pastor, for the time you visited the shut-in, for your tears, for all those who were challenged and othered and marginalized. What you did to them, you did to me. Alas, I'm sad when you do not believe that I've totally forgiven you or you feel uncomfortable approaching me. Living by grace through faith is more than mere proselytizing. It's an incarnation. He lives in us. The priest, the priest that intercedes for us, that gives us the forgiveness, the atonement, and the righteousness to be able to intercede for others, he was one who was made to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, you and I, we might become the righteousness of God. king of peace, the king of righteousness. Our priest is in the order of Melchizedek forever. Thank you for hanging in there with me. Man. Can't wait to meet this author of the Hebrews. I also can't wait to be able to give an opportunity to live like we've been called to live again. I hope you feel the same.